Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Cass Carter and Martin Bossy joining me. Pai ki te noho kia Good to be with you today. Uh, and I'm um, just looking here, Prime Minister Chris Sipkins in his uh, post-cab 4pm, uh, the government has announced a law change that will see more child support passed on to solo parents rather than used uh, to offset their benefits. So I'm sure you'll be hearing more about that on Checkpoint uh, just after the 5 o'clock news with Lisa Owen. Well, thousands turned up in Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch protesting the presence of British anti-trans activist Callie J. Ken Minshew, known as Posey Parker. Trans rights counter-protesters vastly outnumbered Parkers at the event at Albert Park in Auckland and she left before speaking. Her visit to New Zealand made headlines internationally, the likes of J.K. Rowling weighing in. And the Minister of Prevention and Family and Sexual Violence, Marama Davison, has today walked back a comment made under duress that, quote-unquote, white cis men are the main cause of violence in the world. But away from the protests for a bit, I thought this a good opportunity to, to ask, well, what are the issues at play for those in the transgender community in New Zealand. Dr Jamie Veal is Rutherford Discovery Fellow, Royal Society Aparangi and Senior Lecturer in the School of Psychology, also the Director of the Transgender Health Research Lab at the University of Waikato. Dr Veal, kia ora. Kia ora. Wallace and kia ora, kia ora to the panel. Good to have you on, Dr Veal. So tell us, what is the reality for a trans person living in New Zealand in 2023? Yeah, so trans people like myself, oh, we're all really diverse. So when you say a trans person, you know, we're, we come from all ages, all ethnicities and all regions. But, you know, overall, though, there are some things that we can say from, from research from myself and others uh, that we, we, we do face really high levels of discrimination, harassment and violence just being transgender and and often, of course, that's worse for those who, who face these things for, for other reasons, like racism, ableism, or prejudice for other reasons. And it's important because, yeah, for, for many reasons, but, but we also know that these experiences, these negative experiences are associated with what we call gender minority distress, which is a chronic stress that, that many trans people have to face just over and above the general level of stress that, that anyone really experiences. And that can have um, real impacts on, on people's mental health. And we know from research that, that you know, our team has been doing and, and others in Aotearoa and internationally that there are real huge um, health inequities um, for, for mental health and well-being for, for our population. And, um, yeah, I guess I'm talking about discrimination. Um, we also know that in this country, trans people have, have actually really quite low levels of trust in the current legal protections against... Right. Discrimination. We know recently we lost um, Georgina Bayer. I'm sure, sure many of your listeners will know of her. And yeah, she and, and many others have, um, for, for many years, actually called for us to to explicitly name that um, that discrimination for being transgender should be a protected ground in our legislation. Yeah, and so we're not there yet. Um, yeah, so, so I think that's that's something yeah. that's still really important. Well, let, we'll so bring our panel in. 
I'll bring up yeah, panel yeah. very shortly, Jamie. And also, if you could just turn your your, your little bit of a, um, uh, a bad phone line there, so if you could sort of move to your a meter to your left or right. In terms okay, of right. Uh, in terms of the research you're doing at the uh, the Health Research Lab, how do you think New Zealand compares to the transgender community, say, in Australia, Canada, or elsewhere? Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah, look, I think there are some issues that are really similar to, you know, in many places um, that you go to. Um, but one thing I do think that that is really quite quite different um, that, that we see, you know, when I'm speaking to my colleagues in these, these countries that we like to compare ourselves with is, yeah, the really um, high levels of um, unmet need and huge delays and gaps in accessing to, access to gender-affirming care um, so, in, in we did research in the Counting Ourselves study, um, a 2018 survey of over 1,100 trans people in Aotearoa. And yeah, we, we found that 19% of them um, reported an, an unmet need for hormones. So, so, this was something that they just hadn't been able to get because they didn't know where to go or they were too afraid. And in terms of the, the genital surgeries, um, you know, we, we give about 15 of these surgeries per year, and, and that's really just just not enough to, to meet demand at all. Okay, um, um, let's bring our panel, Cass. Yeah, um, nice to hear from you, Dr. Veal. I, I was really impressed okay. with the turnout in Auckland, and I but I wondered, is it because there was a whole lot of New Zealanders supporting the transgender community or was it because transgender people have just had enough and wanted an opportunity to voice all their concerns, including, of course, Posey Parker? I'm just wondering which way way round it was. Yeah, yeah, great question. So I think think it's probably a bit of both. Um, You know, fundamentally it's it's about, um, you know, I talked about some of the negative things of what it's like to be trans in Aotearoa, but... You know, I don't want to just paint a completely negative picture. I think it's important that we also know that when, when trans people, um, well, for starters, when we have family or whanau or community support, um, that can be a really significant protective factor for, for um, against some of these worst potential out, uh, impacts of our, on our health and well-being. And if, within our communities, that actually often means um, providing that support and connection with, with each other and, and just building pride in who we are. And so I think that's really what um, a bit of what we saw uh, happening on the weekend with the, with the protest. Martin. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, an interesting issue, isn't it? it um, I mean, Dr. Field, do you think now that, um, you know, obviously the, this has been, I guess, brought into the wider consciousness uh, of, of, you know, of, of the nation, that, you know, and, you know, we, you know, we need to be better at accepting uh, the different viewpoints and, uh, and the different rights that people have, but now we might actually be able to have sort of some sort of constructive, conscious discussion about this, with, you know, without the violent protest protests that that, that that were associated with it in the weekend. I mean, do you do you think we kind of woke yeah, up a wee bit to actually kind of having that dialogue? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think we are really building towards actually being able to have that understanding. What I think that's about is you know. There's just more and more trans people, you know, feeling comfortable to be able to come out and be ourselves. So we're part of everybody's lives. You know, we're we're people of all ages. We're living in all parts of Aotearoa. And what we, you know, when we're out there, um, academics and and um, other advocates presenting to health professionals or government agencies or whatever, we're often struck by you know Aotearoa being so small. And just about every time we present in person. 
people will come up to us and just talk about, you know, the, the, the trans people in their life, and that might be their child, their parent, or their grandparent, or their work colleague. So, yeah, so it's really about, you know, the people that love and care about us. Um, we're just the everyday people living in, in every part of Aotearoa. And so, yeah, we, we just um, recognise that we all should be able to just walk down the street without um, fear, knowing that others will be able, um, will actually speak out if we are ridiculed and attacked. And, um, yeah, and we hope that the laws will, will explicitly protect us from harm in the future. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the huge support in, uh, for trans people and solidarity um, in the weekend actually shows that I think that support and understanding is growing, and that means a lot. It was interesting to hear Sir Peter Gluckman this morning, and he was the, he's a researcher scientist and the Prime Minister's uh, former Chief Science Advisor. He is saying, I'm quoting him, the whole of society needs to understand that every human has rights that need to be respected, and that includes the right to express one's own identity and gender. But, Dr. Veal, can you appreciate that there is a segment of society still trying, really trying to get their heads around these issues? That may be people of an older generation, maybe due to cultural beliefs. It may be, for example, parents who have a child who wants to transition, and they go, what? I don't get it. What would you say? Yeah, so yeah, I'm re- reminded of um, Dr. Elizabeth Kitty. Kitty um, has, has created some amazing resources for Takatapui and other uh, rainbow Māori and, and their whānau um, who are on a, on a journey to, I guess, understanding about gender and sexuality with, together with their whānau. And just um, there's one phrase from, from her resource that really stood out to me, and that's, um, let Aroha be your guide. It also makes me think of the late Moana Jackson reminding us that, you know, free speech um, should never demean or diminish um, another person's mana or dignity. So my hope is really that, that people can see past. Um, you know, there is, there is some, uh, it seems like, well-organised uh, misinformation campaigns from places like the US and UK and, and perhaps some fear and, and moral panic that seems to be coming out of that. But, you know, um, maybe we can just focus on, um, on the support and love that actually you would hope to, um, that should be there for, for any of the, the trans people who, who, you know, that could be your, your child, your work colleague, um, just people that we know in, um, in our community. Very good, Dr. Veal Kiora. That's uh, Dr. Jamie Veal there, who's a Rutherford Discovery Fellow at the Royal Society, the Aparangi Senior Lecturer in the School of Psychology at Waikato, and he's the director of the Transgender Health Research Lab. Eight on uh, what are the issues at play at the moment. 18 past four, the panel of the arts community in our biggest city is very much on edge as Auckland Council looks to cut $35 million in arts funding to try and balance the books. It's one of the main talking points of the council's annual plan. Council arts funding covers a wide range of arts and cultural organisations, events and programmes. And Mayor Wayne Brown is saying that no decision has been made and is encouraging Aucklanders to give their feedback. With us is Colleen Brown, a now community advocate and former Monaco City Councillor, uh, and uh, is with us now. Kia ora, Colleen. Kia ora, how are you? I'm very well. What are you most worried about if arts funding faces the chop 35 million bucks, not insignificant? Well, it's huge, uh, Wallace. It's absolutely massive. And uh, there's many, many slivers 
kind of weaves this together into the whole city that's actually holding this money. And I, I think even uh, the mayor is somewhat perplexed on how it is all made up. Oh, oh Colleen, if you could just turn your head there. We're go, having a few um, phone issues on the panel today. Just uh, move to okay. the right a bit or try try it again. Yep, I'm um, just saying Much that, better. Uh, that the um, there's lots of components in this arts budget, it appears. And so, um, and I think even the mayor is somewhat perplexed about how it's made up. I think for us uh, living particularly in South Auckland, uh, Manukau City Council had a real view about art and it invested in it because it knew that it was growing uh, our, for our artists, our writers, our musicians of the future and it added to the, the richness that was already being uh, developed on marae and um, in churches and schools. Um, it just added hmm. that flavour to it. But now uh, we- I was just going to jump in and say that we are just so so cash-strapped now that the council is retreating from five buildings, subletting quite a bit of space now, and even some of the furniture and fittings are up for grabs. This is going to be really, really tight. So some would say we all need to tighten that belt. Yeah, but not at the expense of the most impoverished people that live in the community. Not at the... I mean, I have been to so many submissions in South Auckland, and not and everybody is saying, for goodness sake, raise the rate and get more debt because you can afford it. And they're saying that we don't want to lose what we've actually invested in for years and years and years. And I just hope that more and more people are getting out there and saying that. I mean, South Auckland, uh, just in the communities, Otara alone, Otara, Papatoetoe community alone, is $1 million worth of funds in their art. And that's OMAC. And that is only one of two of those uh, particular centres in the whole of the country. All right, Cass. Music centre. And that's going to go because they've given it. Auckland Council have suddenly given this decision to the local board. Is that confirmed? Is that confirmed? That's going to go? No, that is up for grabs. But Mm. what has happened is that Auckland Council have said, we're going to give more decision-making to local boards. We will give you this decision to to whether you're going to keep it or not. But the decision they've got, option one, is cut it totally, or you can have a small proportion of money towards it. Where is the additional money coming from? And on top of this, on top of this, Wallace, we don't even know what the income is. So if I take our local community um, art centre, which is Nathan Homestead, We've been told we've got to cut, there'll be $419,000 going out of that, which the local board has got to decide whether they're going to cut it totally. Oh, we're going to jump in, Colleen. Yeah. I, want to, I want to have time for our panel. $419,000 from Nathan Homestead, pretty significant, isn't it? Round the panel, we'll come back to you, Colleen. You first, uh, Cass. Yeah, I can understand your passion, Colleen. I do a lot of work in the arts um, area too, and it's always seems to be first on the chopping block um, and, and it's also incredibly underpaid and most people who work in the arts do it just out of passion. I have to say as a Wellingtonian, I did think when I heard um, Mayor Brown's um, announcement that um, if Auckland cans the arts, it gives us um, us in Wellington another lever to say we are the cultural capital of New Zealand because you were sort of chasing us. But when I looked at sort of the details of where the funding was going from, it doesn't seem like what I'd call core arts. It, you've, you're talking about museums 
um, and that's our history. So to me, it's more than arts. And you're talking about motet, which is educational. So it seems to me that it spans much more than just the the sort of main what you what you talk about with arts. But I guess the thing is, there is a debt, and if you're tossing up between arts and sewerage management, how how, how do you make that call? All right, David Colleen Martin first. Yeah, it's uh, like somebody who's actually you know on, on a council at the moment and um, is going through sort of you know the, the rates review process. It's you know it's not an easy and Colin, you've been there as a councillor yourself. It's not an easy process to go through um, to look at you know we we you know where you can trim your costs. But you kind of I mean Bernard Hickey raised a really interesting point about this um, last year when he said you know sell the golf courses. There's three billion there and they take it costs 160 million a year to service. Um, and you could argue that the arts and you know, the arts and culture. Hang on, a hundred and sixty million dollars yeah. a year to service the golf courses. Wow. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, Bernard Hickey said this last year in the Herald, and he said, you know, that um, it would save one hundred and sixty million a year. Okay, now if they got con- the golf courses, and you think far more people are are, are, are into the arts and the culture than than they are than they are playing on you know playing on the city's golf courses. Final got, thoughts, Colin. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would go with Bernard Hickey on that every time. But I mean, the people are saying, keep our keep our art centres. They are who we are. That is the cultural glue that makes us a community. And you yeah, absolutely do budget without even knowing what the income is. How do you do that? We know mm. what that. It has taken me a month to get what the numbers are of the income for um, Nathan Homestead. That's not on this document. So you can't actually do this. You can't slash something and not know how much income you get mm. from it. And these are these in South Auckland. We're carrying um, two over two, just on three million dollars worth of this. I mean, that may not seem very much, but it means a lot to children who don't have very much. And to go out there and see who they are in the local art gallery, they're not going to go into into the central city. Nice and to have you on, Colleen. Yeah, uh, and I appreciate it. Uh, appreciate your time. There's Colleen Brown, there, uh, community advocate and former Monaco city councillor there. Uh, who says that Southall in particular will be a big loser if these planned uh, cuts, particularly to arts, go ahead. 26 past four of the joy and nostalgia of old-fashioned cookbooks. Denise Serving is a freelance journalist, mused on this as she was culling her old cookbooks. What have you got? Wild Kitchen. Provence of the Beautiful, your Rick Steins in there, Hamlin's All-Colour Microwave Cookbook. Alison Holst's Little Muffin Book. For me, the Enchanted Broccoli Cookbook, terrible crumbed baked eggplant, lots of cheese, terribly dry. Uh, with us on the line, we have Madeline from Martinborough. Madeline, kia ora. Hey, how are you? Very well. How are you? What's your choice? My choice is Digby Lure. Oh. oh. <laughs> right. 70s. I've got a um, fabulous uh, vegetable cookbook. I haven't, unfortunately, got a soup cookbook, which is also awesome. What was so good about Digby Law's vegetable cookbook? Um, Well, it was was written in 1979. I've got the 83 uh, edition. And it just takes really basic vegetables. He does actually do a few exotics, but basic vegetables and does interesting things with them from that time and stuff, things you can still do today. I um, cook for Meals on Wheels for Southern Wairapa, and um, I'm always striving to find something new to do with parsnips and carrots yes. and cabbage and things like that. Yep. 
and um, this sort of, you know, resonates with the people that I cook for. Love it, Madeline. Thank you very much for being part of the panel today. Oh, that's Madeline there who says Digby Law. Now, of course, Martin, we haven't included your uh, wonderful uh, cookbooks yourself, but you do, you do you relate to Digby Law's vegetable cookbook, Late 70s? Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, um, Madeline Southwire represent. Well done. Um, yeah, I've, I, um, I still make um, Digby Law's Fijo chutney recipe to this day. Uh, oh. It's uh, it's just a fantastic, fantastic cookbook. My favourite would be Lois Dacia's book of, uh, I think, 1989. Oh, okay. Good food, which I will never, ever get rid of and uh, never part with. I just think it's just got some really? beautiful recipes in there. Yeah, I'll be making her Simnel cake at Easter. Made it every year. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great book. Lowest oh. Fantastic. Cass? I had not heard of either of those. I'm learning a lot today. Um, I actually <laughs> <laughs> nearly um, had a divorce over my favourite cookbook. Um, I got a cookbook. It was a Charmaine Solomon, the Asian cookbooks. Um, oh, it was brilliant. the full Asian one, and it was divided into each country. And um, I was given it to my, my university flatmates, and they'd written little notes all the way through it. And we'd cooked out of it a lot, and it was filthy, and the pages stuck together, and I absolutely loved it. And then one day I went home years later, and it was gone. And my husband's never admitted it, but I know. (laughs) I know. (laughs) He threw it out, and I tell you what, I'm still bitter. I'm still bitter about that. Someone says, Alison Holst, Meals Without Meat Through the Student Days and the Country Women's Institute for Never Failing the Baking Treats. Leslie says, The Complete Asian Cookbook by Charmaine yep, Solomon. That's it. 1976, mm. 10 reprints, Indian section, Thrashed, Delicious mm. Recipes. Um, Al Brown's Eat Up New Zealand. And another one here. I have my great-grandmother's recipe book from 1890. The back pages have recipes for things like recovering from lightning strikes and (laughs) bites from a mad dog. Wow. That's handy. (laughs) (laughs) We might have to get the person on uh, on the show. But it's funny, isn't it, Martin? Because there's often just that, out of the many you might have, there's just that one or two that you go back to. As I said... The Enchanted Broccoli Kitchen for me. And there was another yeah. one I had, Martin, which was called Be Bold with Bananas. Oh, I remember that. I had that one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, you had your, it, was, it was a bit of a shocker. Uh, you had, um, you know, you had your banana, ham and pineapple skewers. You had your banana candle with mayonnaise, mayonnaise dripping down the side. It looked a bit rude, but nonetheless, <laughs> with a cherry on top and lettuce at its base, wasn't the best looker. Um, but you'd be involved with the bananas. Anyway, uh, keep them coming. What's uh, your favourite old school cookbook? Yes, yeah, stop picturing that in your mind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, actually.